You guys pray with me as we begin. Father, we come before your word tonight. We ask that we would hear what you have to say. Father, I pray that um, you would help me get out of the way and so we would see um, what your word says and rightly understand it. Father, I pray you'd let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm excited to be back with you guys again. It's been just like a few weeks, so it's like Christmas for me all over again. It's fantastic, so I'm excited to be back here. If you guys have been with us for a little while, as I'm sure most of you have, we've been working through Romans since August, pretty much. And so for the past couple months, we have worked through in great detail Paul's presentation of the gospel. And it's gone through many different phases, 11 huge chapters of really rich doctrine and just really kind of thick passages. And now we come to a transition to a different section. And this section has more to do with our response to what has been said before. I was telling my wife on the way here that when I've been thinking about responses, I, I, uh, well, since I've been married, I've been seeing more chick flicks than usual. And so I think of just like this grand romantic gesture that comes at the end, this, this huge thing, everything builds up to it, and the guy or the girl professes their love. And then the other person is kind of there, and it's what will they do next? How will they respond? And sometimes it goes really south, and sometimes it's great, but it's all fake anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But the idea that we are presented with a grand message, this idea that is so huge, it's so amazing, it is earth-shattering, and how will we respond to it? And that's what we're going to look at tonight um, as we move through this passage If you've been in the church a long time in your life, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard this passage before, Romans 12. And so if you're like me, your temptation is to move really quick past the first sentence and get to present your bodies. And, and that is important. That is kind of the central thing. But I want to slow down a little bit. And, and we, we only begin to really understand this passage when we see these first couple words. So it begins with, I appeal to you, therefore... Brothers, by the mercies of God. First word we need to be really noticing is the therefore. That means that in view of everything that's happened, everything he's said before, all 11 chapters, all, I don't know how many months since August we've been talking about this, that is all in mind. So if I could get someone to read Romans 1 through 11, but we don't have time for that. So, but we need to draw our minds back to, to everything that's come before and, and what is that? He says, by the mercies of God. Another way that could be trans, uh, translated is in view of the mercies of God. When we're looking back on what Paul has said, we have to keep in mind, in our view, that all of this is because of the mercies of God. It's all because of the gospel. If we don't have the gospel on the front of our mind through this text, we will really quickly lose what it is saying. And for me, that is so, so easy. 
Um, I've grown up in the church. I've grown up, my dad was a pastor and a youth pastor, and I went to a Christian college, and I'm in seminary now. So it's, it's really easy for me to lose the gospel. And you'd think it would be the other way around, but, but for me, it's not. For me, it's really easy to become all about what I'm doing. And shouldn't I be really holy because of all these things I'm doing? And we really quickly lose sight of the mercies of God. And so I, we have to start there or we lose this passage completely and we lose exactly what we're talking about. So all the way from the beginning in Romans 1 when, when Paul talks about how desperate our situation is, when he just one by one rips out every excuse that we have. Are you religious? doesn't matter. You're not good enough. Are you non-religious or you're just on the outside? You're condemned by God even if you haven't heard God's law. We stand in desperate need of someone to save us. Our minds are fallen. They are darkened by sin. We are corrupted by sin. To where, in the end, Paul says, wretched man that I am. I am, I, I am unable to save myself. I am in need of a Savior. Continuing to the hope that Paul gives. Talking about a Savior, Jesus, who has come to save us, who has put his goodness on us. Not what we do, not what we can earn it, but what God has done. He puts it on us. The assurance of Romans 8, like Logan talked about just now, that we can be sure that we are in Christ, that we are saved in Christ, and that we will be glorified and, and, and will know him for eternity. And even the things that we've been wading through the last couple of weeks, the things that are almost too much to grasp our mind around on what does it mean to be uh, called by God? What does election mean? These mysteries of God that Paul just exclaims, praise be to God, uh, excuse me, praise be to God, I can't understand it, it's too high for me. All of that has to be in mind tonight as we move into what we have. We must keep the mercies of God in view or we lose it. So with these mercies in view, with the gospel in mind, what is our response? How do we then, from all of that we've talked about, how do we go about? If you're like me, you're a believer, we, we are Christians. How do we live our lives day to day Every day, going to school, going to class, going to work, how do we do that with the mercies of God in full view? And that's what we want to look at tonight. So we begin. The response, our response to the gospel, must be to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. If you continue in the first verse, it says, By the mercies of God, present yourselves, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Now, as I said previously, I've heard this verse a lot through my whole life, and so I'm tempted to forget how weird it sounds to say, I need you guys to present your body as a living sacrifice, and God's going to really like it. It's kind of a strange idea. Number one, we don't really sacrifice things anymore. I've never killed an animal and set it on fire and said, I think God will like this. Um, You'd probably worry about me if I had. We don't have a pet. Um, Also, when you sacrifice something, it's definitely dead. So what is a living sacrifice? The word sacrifice actually means to kill. So it is a living killing, is what Paul is saying. So what in the world is he talking about? What does it mean to present our bodies as a living sacrifice? Well, we begin with this picture of a sacrifice that comes from the Old Testament. So... In the, in the far ancient Near East, they worshipped in a lot of different ways than we did. And they had this thing called a whole sacrifice, a whole burnt offering. And basically you took 
your best sheep or goat or cattle. Um, the, the best one had to be perfect. Um, no blemishes. It couldn't be sick or, or crippled or anything. And you had to slaughter it and burn the entire thing as an offering to God. Now, why do you do this? You do this because it represents pretty much all that you have. They got their wealth from sheep and cows and all that. And so by doing this, they're basically offering the best thing they have and saying, you can have every bit of it. I'm not taking part of it. I'm not taking a little bit here. I am literally burning it all up until there's nothing left. It's all yours. And that's kind of the idea that Paul has in mind here. We are to offer ourselves completely, to present ourselves as a sacrifice to God with no holds back, no holding back, nothing held back, nothing that's still mine, not this part of me, not two days a week and occasional mission trip, everything. I am presenting myself fully and completely to God. A living sacrifice. So, I want to let that sink in. The complete, full, everything that we have. When the gospel grips hold of us, it's not, it's not something you can half respond to. It's not something you can give part of yourself to. The God of the universe has taken you when you were his enemy, when you deserved death and eternal punishment. He has taken you. He has saved you. He has remade you. And he is making you in the image of his son. And, and we kind of forget how big that is, how amazing that, that is, what, what great mercies God has lavished upon us. And when God has poured out everything, when he gave his very son for us, if we don't respond with everything we have, it's an offense. It's looking down on the, on the sacrifice Christ has made on our behalf. It's saying it's not good enough. God doesn't demand parts of it. God doesn't demand all the good things I do every day throughout the week. He demands literally us. Not a gift, but a giver. He demands all of us. It goes on and, and it says we are to offer our bodies. It doesn't use the word self. It says literally bodies. I think he does this for a really important reason. If you're like me, sometimes we think of faith and we think of Christ as a little bit super spiritualized. It's super, super abstract and, and just kind of like, I don't know. Whoa, lost something there. I don't know what that is. Um, but yeah, it, it, the, we think of the Christian life as over-spiritualized. It's a spiritual reality. It doesn't really have anything to do with here and now. But this word that he used makes you think like, no, it's like your literal, your literal body, like you. The Christian life is physical. It is us right here, whatever we're doing. It's us eating. It's us you know, taking a shower. It's, it's that physical. It's every day embodied of all that we do. We can't p- push it off into some uh, you know, weird ethereal realm. It's what I'm doing today. As I'm sitting here right now, God owning me our entirety. We see from the text that it's not just the self, it's not just the physical, but it's, it's the mental as well. He talks about the mind, um, but really the image he's creating is just the total human being, mind, soul, body, the whole image is laid down like on an offering and is sent, is given to God. It's, it's offered up to him. And so what is the result of this sacrifice, of this giving of ourself? Well, God says that it's 
It's living. That means it's continuing. We're not dying. It's not a once and for all. It's not a one-time sacrifice that only lasts for a little while. It's a continual thing. It doesn't destroy us. It doesn't kill us, but it gives us life. It is also holy. The word holy means that it is set aside. It is given a special purpose to be used for God. Our life is being offered up to be used for God. And it says it is pleasing to God. Up until now, our lives are really about pleasing ourselves. We see that through most of Romans, especially Romans 1. You see that people are turned over to their own evil desires, and God kind of gives them away to that. This is the opposite of that. We've been repaired. The sin is, the corruption has been pulled away, and we can now love to please God. That's our motivation. Our lives become pleasing to God. Ultimately, he concludes that this is our spiritual worship to give our lives, to offer it up like a sacrifice, just as their sacrifices in the Old Testament was a way of worshiping, us giving of our entire self, our entire life, is an act of worship for God. That means the things you do, being a student, doing a homework, working at a job, even if it's being a janitor, sweeping floors, everything you do, no matter what it is, we are to be doing that in a way that is worshiping God, in a way that is giving God our all. We can hold nothing back. We can't keep this part back. It's all his. That's the response the gospel demands. Because the mercies of God are so great, this is the only response possible. The word for spiritual there is a really hard one to translate in, and it kind of has to do with spiritual, but also rational is, is kind of the idea there as well. It is the only possible response that isn't just ludicrous. To see what God has done, to see his mercies lavished upon us, and to do anything but throw yourself down and offer your entire self to him in gratitude is ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense. When someone has done so much for you to do anything else, say, eh, no, no thanks, I, I still want this. Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous. This is the purpose of our lives. This is what is, what is right and rational. This is worship offered to God with our entire lives body, soul, mind, everything. That is the response that the gospel demands. So how do we do this, right? Because those are all really cool ideas. You've probably heard them before through the course of being in church, but what does that mean for me? And as the passage continues, we kind of get an idea um, of what this looks like. The next verse, verse 2, goes into the means, the way that this begins to happen. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, Paul gives us two ways that this begins to happen. One is a negative command and one is a positive command. The first thing that we must do is we must not be conformed to the world. Now again, this goes back to things that Paul has talked about previously. The world is the present age, the everything that is around us. And as we go through life, as we interact with other people, as we face the, the pressures of different situations, it's like the world is trying to force us into a mold and press it on us and, and so that we become shaped into the image of the world. We begin to look more and more like the world, like everything else around us, like everything that is against God. 
everything that is self-driven, everything that is bent in on itself, worshiping itself and, and not giving the glory and honor to the Lord, not offering itself to God. And so he says we can't do that. We can't be conformed to the world. And in the exact opposite, instead of being conformed, we must be transformed by the renewing of, by the renewing of our mind. The word for transform there is like the same word you would use to talk about like a butterfly. So it's like you're metamorphosizing from a little worm into a butterfly, which is kind of cool if you like butterflies. If not, I'm sorry. Um, so it's this, this transformation, this remaking, this new person coming out of it. Now this, exactly what happens there with this renewing of our mind, this is something that God does for us. This is something the Spirit does in our lives to remake not just what we think, but the way that we think. So instead of in the past when we were being conformed to the image of the world, our mind is drawn towards sinful things. We want to do things that please our sinful self. We want to do things for just me. We want to do things that are just just searching for pleasure, just searching for meaning. Uh, our minds are, are kind of fixed on those things and they can't get away. But when we are in Christ, when the gospel has rescued us, our mind is freed to be able to think in a way that is pleasing God, to think like Christ thinks. And that's the idea with this passage. Because he says, once your mind has been transformed, you are able to discern the will of God. So it's kind of a mind-blowing thing. We, we oftentimes think the will of God is something that's so unknowable. I know I spent all these years of my life saying, like, is it God's will to do this? Is it God's will to go to college here or there? It's, it's this unknowable thing. Well, that's not what Scripture tells us. It tells us as we are being transformed by the Spirit, we can know what God's will is. We can, we can see what it is in our lives. And, and, and what this means is not like we're seeing the future or seeing what's going to come or, or anything strange like that. But it means we are able to understand what God would have us do, how God would have us live. This is the, the way to living rightly, to living every aspect of your life as a sacrifice to God. So, lost my place there. Um, it, it comes with the ability to know what God wants, um, it, it, both in what is right to do, because it talks about what is holy and pleasing, again, that pleasing to God, living a life that's pleasing to God. And it also comes with the ability to do it, because all of this seems like so much, like almost living perfectly, right? Like having a mind that is focused on God's will, having a, every bit of my life being given to God, being offered as a sacrifice. It, it is so much with, with the transforming of our lives. We have the ability to know what God would have us do and the ability to do it. And so that's good news. That means as we go out into whatever place you're going to go next, whatever you're doing tomorrow, in Christ you have the ability to know how you should act and to do it. This is the transformed life. And in doing those things, our life becomes a sacrifice. It is pleasing to God. It is living for God. So in this way, the gospel is what is transforming our mind. So all that is kind of heavy. Hopefully you're staying with me here. Um, so because all of that is just so much is packed into two little verses, we need sort of an example of, of what this means lived out. 
Because Paul has kind of described in two little sentences what it means to live the Christian life, what it means to live in view of the mercies of God. Um, but, but now, what does that look like? Well, he's going to give us a bunch of examples. From this point on in chapter 12 and chapter 13, he's going to say, okay, so living in the gospel, thinking with the mind of Christ, thinking with a mind that is soaked in the gospel and the truth of the gospel, how then do I interact with this person? So he's going to talk about first, like, well, how do I interact with authorities or how do I interact with family members or how do I do this with the gospel uh, shaping the way I think, with the gospel moving the way I act and think and honor God? So we're going to look at one particular example. Um, Through the rest of these verses, through 3 through 8, Paul talks about how the gospel influences the way we think of ourselves and the way we think of other people. How the gospel affects the way we think of ourselves and the way we think of other people. This is the practical living out, the concrete example of what it means to live out the renewed mind. Um, So he begins, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. A lot of time in our culture is spent to figure out how I understand who I am, what I think of myself, who, what is my identity, We search for all kinds of ways to do this, and we typically end up on one side of the scale or the other, which is kind of an overcorrection. We either think far too low of ourselves. We are tempted to push ourselves down. We are tempted to think, I'm not worth anything. I'm not good at this. I can't do these things. Or we're tempted to think much too highly of ourselves, to think pridefully, to think, uh, you know, I'm pretty much all that in a bag of chips. And so Paul is showing us that the gospel lets us see ourselves rightly, neither too high or too low, to see ourselves with sober judgment. And he says to do that, God has provided us a measure, like a standard almost, like he gives us this ruler that is, that is applicable, it is correct, and it is straight, something that we can measure ourselves by. And he says... What is that? It's, it's the gospel. He says, it's the faith that God has given you. The truth of the gospel is the measure by which we see ourselves and which we see how, uh, who we are. We see ourselves rightly, not too highly or not too low. And so he does this with this long metaphor of a body. And this is seen other places in Paul, too. We had a really awesome uh, illustration by Rachel um, the last couple weeks that shows, like, a body with all these different parts to it. Paul uses this illustration to say the church, God's people, are like a body, and each person is a different part, and each part has a different function. So the idea is like some people are eyes, and some people are ears, and some people are the fibula, and on and on and on. Now, if your whole body is made up of a bunch of eyes, you look gross, and you can't hear anything. Um, If your whole body is made up of ears, you can't walk, and you can't get around. So the idea is that instead of having everyone be exactly the same, instead of everyone being this giant glob of ears, we are a complete body with different parts that act in different ways. 
And when we recognize this, we see that there is beauty in the diversity of, of Christ, in the, in the body of Christ. We are one together, even in all of our diverse ways. So how does this help us think about ourselves? Well, it fights the lies that say, I, I, I'm worthless. I have nothing good about me. It says, no, God has gifted you. You have a particular role in the body of Christ that you were made to do. This other person can't do it. You were designed to do that. There's great freedom in that and say, no, I, I have a place. I'm a part of something. I'm accepted as something. I am useful. I am needed by others. So I don't think too lowly of myself. But also keeps us from going the other side and saying, well, I'm the best. Everyone should look just like me. No, because I also need the other pieces. I need those pieces to help me. I need those pieces to, uh, to do these other functions. My function by itself is good, but it's not everything. I need other people. This, this gospel way of thinking, of viewing ourselves by the gospel, puts us on a great leveling field. We are all equally deserving of punishment. We are all condemned. We are all not good enough to make it ourselves. But we are all equally loved in Christ. God has saved us. And he has made us a body and he has designed us with a function and a place and we fit together as, as Christ's body in the world, doing what Christ would have us do, doing the work of God in the world. What an amazing privilege. So we see the gospel gives us purpose. The gospel gives us self-worth and, and right thinking about who we are and how we relate to other people. You think of all the implications of this. What does the gospel, what does this passage have to say to things like racism? To say, I don't like these people because they don't look like me. No, if we are in Christ, we can't think like that anymore. We can't think this person's a different race, this person's a different gender. They are different, but they are all part of the body. They have worth. They are loved by God. They are made in God's image. He has given them a job to do, a divine gift that helps me. I help them. Together, we are one body in Christ. It leaves no room for those other things. It doesn't leave us room to view other people wrongly. It doesn't give us room to think of ourselves wrongly anymore. To think of ourselves too lowly is to say that God is wrong. That God, when you say I have value, you're just wrong. We can't do that. We can't believe the gospel and say that God is wrong and who he's made us and how he's gifted us. The gospel shapes the way we think of ourselves and the way we think of other people. There's so much else in that section on, on, the, on the body. It, it, it is rich with imagery. It tells us so much about how the church works together and who it is, and we, and we don't have time to go into all of it tonight. But what I want us to come away with is the gospel is applied to each area of our lives. Some of them really explicitly, like in Scripture here. Paul is telling us directly, this is how you work with people who are around you in the body of Christ. You're one. You're together. You work together and you love each other as one body, united in Christ. There are other areas that Paul doesn't deal with specifically. But he's, he's shown us that the gospel can address those ways. That when we have the renewed mind of Christ, we can look at any situation we can face, anything that we walk into and say, I know how to live the gospel out in this situation. The gospel applies to everything we do in our life what is right and wrong for us to do, 
how we should think about a problem, all of it. And as we move through these passages, we're going to see example after example of the gospel shaping the way we live as believers each day. And when we do that, when we are letting the mind of Christ live out in us and the things that we do and the way that we act and the way that we see ourselves and the way we interact with other people, then we've given Christ all of us. Christ isn't just something that we have on one particular day. It's not a sacrifice that we only make on Sundays or only make on Wednesdays. It's a sacrifice each and every day, every moment of every day, living in a way that is Christ-like, becoming more and more like Christ each day as we are transformed more and more each day. And this way we worship God with all that we are. And that's, that's the Christian life. That's responding to the gospel in our lives. Now, as I said at the beginning, if for a second we take our eyes off the mercies of God, then we completely lose track of this passage. It becomes a list of things we need to do. I need to transform my mind. I need to not be conformed. I need to treat this person nice because that's the rule and I have to do it. That's just how it is. When we don't have the gospel, this becomes all about fear. I need to do this because I might not make it into heaven. I might not get there. And I might lose God's love because of that. Or we do it out of guilt, saying, I, I, I've had people tell me for so long that I'm terrible if I do this, that if I don't treat people this way, I'm terrible, so I do it because I, I just want the guilt to go away. If we lose the gospel, we have to rest on some other motivation that will not get us there. When things get hard, when we are being persecuted for our faith, the motivation of fear will run out. And we'll be more afraid of something else. We'll follow that other thing. We won't endure if it's the expectations and these rules that we have to keep, we will break down under them and we will not keep them. We ourselves cannot get to this standard. We cannot live as Christ wants us to. We cannot have the mind of Christ on our own and we cannot offer our entire selves on our own. But that's the beauty of the gospel. This is what Christ has done for us. This is us living in response to a gospel. This is us responding with gratitude to the gifts that God has given us, to the mercies of God. In one of the commentaries I looked at, there was a story that illustrated this idea. He says there's a father who's been working for months to teach his son how to hit a home run, how to bat. And there's the perfect stance and the perfect grip and the timing, figuring out everything. And he's worked meticulously to help him to do this. Now, at the game, when the father is sitting in the bleachers and he's watching the son, and the son is going out there and he wants to hit that home run, will the father stop loving him if he fails? No, he won't. He will love him. He wants him to hit that home run. He wants him to be able to do it. But, he, but his love is not dependent on that, on hitting the home run. And the son, the son is not sitting there thinking, I need to hit this. If I don't, my father's not going to love me. He's not going to take me home tomorrow. No, it's, it is a response because he loves the Father, and the Father loves him, so he wants to do it. We don't need to do these things to earn our way before God anymore. That's been done. We are right before God. God loves us. So we can go out in freedom to live 
for Christ, to offer every bit of ourselves to Christ because we know that we are loved by our Father. And we know that nothing can change that, not mistakes that we make, not times that we fail. Christ loves us. That frees us to give him everything we have, to surrender everything we have to Christ. So as you live, as you go out tomorrow, in the flesh, the physical you going out into your life, into the different areas that God has put you, do not lose sight of the mercies of God. View those things. And by doing that, we can live a life fueled by gratitude, a life that is grateful for the gospel, that is thinking with a mind transformed by the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the comfort it gives us, for the assurance that all this doesn't rest on us and how good we can do and how, how good we can be. And Father, we, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you love us because of what you've done, not because we were lovable, but you love us because you are loving and you have found us acceptable in your sight, Lord. I pray that we would respond with gratitude to the gospel, Lord, that we would live, we would give everything to you because we love you, Lord. And Lord, we know you are faithful to be with us, to help us to do this. So help each of us as we go out, help us to keep the gospel in mind, to not lose it and fall into a fearful motivation on works, Lord, but to live every aspect of our lives with the sweet truth of the gospel right before us. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.